use your tank if if the barrel's blown out or or damaged or or all your optics have been you know jarred and, and shattered. Um, with with the bonus rounds, uh, I believe there are multiple submunitions. Yes, you know you had like a a bunch of tanks sort of lined up in a tree line or, or sort of coming down through a field or something. You could you could sort of shoot a uh, a couple of those in, and they should be able to get uh, coverage over a, a larger area, right? That that's what a that's the sort of push. Uh, well, that's that's a sort of design idea behind these uh, new advanced rounds, right? Sort of uh, increase the the lethality and accuracy of regular tube artillery to bring it up to a similar level of effect as one would expect from the more uh, advanced uh, uh, MLRS rocket munitions. Okay, and um, I guess maybe one last question. in terms of cost, do we have any uh, idea? I know, like, the Excalibur round is considered quite expensive, like, you know, maybe hundreds of times more valuable than uh, just a regular artillery shell. Do we know, is the bonus round, like, uh, a very expensive uh, munition, or, or is it, uh, you know, just maybe a little bit more expensive than a regular uh, shell? Thanks. To be fair, I know you're not an expert in the bonus round, so yeah, you can just say, I don't know. I mean, I, I know where to look uh, for the information I need, right? But, um... Okay, I guess like maybe I'll just think out loud uh, here, uh, if you want to do that. But uh, like, I would wonder why why did the maybe the French or uh, de- develop that capability? Like, uh, you know, what why why would the French decide to specialize in that specific uh, ability for artillery to take out a vehicle uh, versus I don't know other countries? Because it seems like you know with the Caesars right, they're the only ones who decided to specialize in wheeled artillery. Right, it just seems like. Uh, Maybe France had kind of a specific plan for their artillery. Yeah, but, uh, I, I don't want to get into sort of French military doctrine too much because, uh, I mean, I've, I've mostly read sort of the older doctrine, so I'm not sure if they've updated it at all. Um, but their their military is sort of focused on light and, and high mobility forces uh, comparative to the rest of the NATO nations. Um, that's, that's part of why... Uh, the the sort of combat record of Leclerc's uh, compared to other NATO vehicles seems to indicate less survivability. So I think um, for the idea behind the bonus round is to add, you know, additional uh, anti-armor capability and and one that's very highly mobile that doesn't risk, you know, an ATGM team or or a a tank platoon, right, to, to sort of engage an armored column. John, uh, did you have something uh, to add to this uh, question? Yes, please, if you don't mind. Um, just just to speak very briefly to the difference between an RPG warhead and, and an EFP, uh, with, with a concrete example. In Basra, um, a Challenger 2 took something north of 70 RPG hits on a, on a run through the city uh, and survived, came out the other side. And, you know, the, the paint job wasn't great but the tank was still in, in good working order. Uh, similarly, a, a Challenger 2 was wasted by one Iranian-manufactured EFP, um, which hit it in the side, which is obviously quite, you know, it's not the thickest armour, but it's still a lot thicker than the, the top armour. And um, and although the crew survived, the, the tank was done. So EFP from the top is, is, a, is an absolute killer. Um, and it's certainly, you know, an, many orders of magnitude more deadly than an RPG. Yeah, I, 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 I realized uh, I was I was getting that mostly wrong as they come out 
as it came out of my mouth because I believe the RPG actually uses um, or sort of jet, whereas an EFP actually forces um, like metal into into a sort of penetrator projectile, like a kinetic penetrator projectile. Correct? Yeah. Well, the the EFP it's it's, it's basically copper. It's like a cone of copper, um, and it and it shoots it through in a jet at the unbelievable pressure. Um, and that's what that's what burrows through. Um, so yeah, that's that's how that works. That's like what a javelin does, right, John? Or is it is it different? I I believe that's how the javelin warhead works. Um, yeah, I, I haven't used the javelin, um, so I can't, I can't speak to things that I don't know about. Really, um, I know a javelin works very well, um, but that that's about my limit on that. It's a pretty good way to kill a tank. It sounds like. Yeah, and an EFP will do anything. It'll do. Let's well, say it did a Challenger two. It'll do an M one. Um, I wouldn't even. I wouldn't even put Israeli armor as survivable. Close close range EFP is is an absolute killer. Are there any like any countermeasures you can take? Like active countermeasures? Can you like try to 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 hit the 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 projectile to stop it or uh, detonate it prematurely? Or? Well, I mean, they, they they work they work very close to the vehicle. So I suppose you could. You try and locate yourself in the middle of an empty field, uh, and you're probably fairly safe then, unless they happen to be falling from a a one five five shell, uh, in which case your your number is up. Yeah, I mean theoretically, you could have some kind of active protection system, right? But despite the fact that uh, a lot of noise has been made about them, I I don't think we've seen a single one on a Russian tank. And yeah, APS is kind of the, the bleeding edge of, of tank protection. So it, I, I don't think it's likely we're ever going to see the Russians employing that. Yeah, thank goodness. Uh, so I guess just for our audience, uh, we are currently taking questions about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. If anyone wants to come on up and uh, ask a question, feel free to request a speaker, and then you can raise your hand, and uh, we'll call on you. We'll do our best to answer your question. Uh, also, if you guys could like and retweet the space, I think in about 20 minutes we're going to have a guest speaker coming, uh, Ivana Stradner. So... Uh, if we could get as many people in the space as possible, if you guys want to uh, take a look at Ivana's work, uh, she does a lot of work in international relations, hybrid warfare, uh, national security, things like that. So uh, if anyone's interested. And uh, yeah, back to you and Pierce. Yeah, this is a uh, sort of apropos of our previous discussion on Belarus, uh, Mikhail Podoliak, uh, advisor to the, uh, to the president of Ukraine, said that Russia is, is effectively just, uh, you know, feeding the rumor mill when it comes to Belarusian uh, involvement to sow panic and, and discord among uh, Ukrainians. I, I, I don't think it's going to work that well, to be honest. And basically, you know, as, as, as Nuno Felix said, like, uh, it'd be the worst uh, military offensive in the, the stupidest military offensive in history. And I mean, honestly, the correct response is to just make fun of it. Just, you know, not, not to sort of minimize uh, the situation or anything, but it's just, you know, it's, it, it's a laughable proposal that the Belarus would have any sort of meaningful effect on the war and that Russia would, you know, need that them to sort of uh, turn the tide. Right. I completely agree. I think, you know, language provided a really good uh, analysis of, of that whole situation once. And like one of the things he mentioned was, you know, the Bel- Belarusian army is participating, at least to the extent that like uh, their medical staff has been basically uh, gang pressed or press ganged into uh, uh, treating Russian uh, wounded. 
and uh, you know their logistics staff and repair staff have been kind of press ganged into uh, repairing Russian vehicles, and you know they're they're seeing the the Russian soldiers come back, and they're seeing the the end result of you know. Uh, all of the Russian wounded, they're having to, uh, as language put it, like spray out the, the guts from these BMPs and, you know, uh, uh, amputate these limbs and, and do all this stuff. So I, I don't think they have a taste for this. You know, we're, we're well past day 100. We're still asking, is Belarus going to invade? You know, it just seems, uh, as you said, uh, just kind of beyond, beyond, uh, beyond seriousness at this point. Uh, I agree. If anyone wants to come up, maybe we can get a bonus CJ. I think everybody is preparing for the special guest few minutes. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff happening on the back end, you know. Well, it's always always a good time to plug Maria, right? Uh, Walt's report. We we bring you guys all these great guests. They do a lot of work to uh, try to schedule them, try to uh, make sure we find good guests for you guys. Uh, and I'll tell you, you know, uh, it's a lot of work. Uh, I watch them. I'm watching them do it. And uh, so they're doing all this work on the Walter Report for you for free. Uh, all we ask is that if you got any bucks, uh, you send them to Maria Aid. Maria Aid is an organization that uh, provides uh, non-lethal equipment to soldiers uh, and civilians in Ukraine. Uh, 100% of your donation is going to go directly to uh, purchasing uh, equipment uh, like tourniquets. Uh, right now we're fundraising specifically for tourniquets, uh, body armor, uh, thermal vision, things like this, uh, drones. And uh, there are no administrative costs. Uh, everyone in Maria Aid is a volunteer, uh, just like Walter Report. So, uh, yep, we're not asking for any money, and uh, Walter Report will never solicit you for any donation outside of Maria Aid. Thank you. And uh, maybe back to you, Imperius. Question? Uh, still here? Yep. <laughs> I'm trying to get CJ up here to talk more about bonus rounds, but uh, I don't know. I think he's been... We got about uh, 15 minutes until our guests, so if anyone maybe wants to come up and uh, has maybe a briefer topic or uh, something they wanted to share... Just hit to the microphone in the left, the lower corner. The co-host will try to bring you up for the question. Uh, I, I do have a, a small item here. It's a report from the Mariupol City Council that over 10,000 uh, Mariupol residents have been uh, illegally uh, detained by, uh, by DNR forces. Uh, it's it's effectively a, a concentration camp. Uh, tens of people locked inside cramped cells that are two by three meters. So you know, um, what what's that? Would any would anyone have that in in feet for our uh, American audience? I think meters like three feet, so like thirty by thirty. Yeah, like yeah, something like that, or yeah, like twenty by thirty or or, or whatever. Um, twenty twenty-seven by thirty. Um, they're they're basically denied any any sort of uh, humanitarian or Martin. You have or, or, hello. You have a hot mic, Martin. Please oh, okay. Just mute your mic. Yep. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to you in uh, a sec, Martin. Sorry, I'm curious. It's just doing yeah. a quick uh, news item. Uh, yeah, the the city council is is trying its best to uh, obtain lists and of of the prisoners and ensure uh, humane conditions for them. Uh, but honestly, I I believe the best way to do that is to get Ukraine in a position to retake Mariupol as, as quickly as possible. Absolutely. And yeah, what's going on in Mariupol is, is a real it, a, absolute uh, travesty. I mean, what's happening there, there's de- dead bodies uh, in the streets. Uh, they're uh, just p- piling rubble on top. Uh, there's, you know, as you said, concentration camps. Uh, there's 
starvation. Like they're they're only providing food to people who cooperate. Uh, just take Russian passports, you know, sign the papers and all that. Uh, it's it's a real uh, it's 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 horrible. It's absolutely horrible. I was wondering, Imperius, um, if you had if you'd noticed, it seems like there's a little teeny salient headed towards May. Uh, Mariupol on the maps and I was wondering if you had any thoughts on like um, have you seen that you know what I'm talking about there's like a little teeny yeah. bulge yeah, that... are they heading that way or uh, I, I haven't heard of any Ukrainian activity like any concerted Ukrainian activity uh, in that area um, of course you know it, it could be a sort of shaping operation uh, to to lay the groundwork for that once uh, the counteroffensives in Kherson culminate with a with a success for the Ukrainians. Um, let me try to pull up a map here to actually take a look at it. Yeah, absolutely. Why don't we go to uh, Martin while, while you do that? Martin, go ahead. Okay. Uh, thanks, uh, Slava Ukraini, calling from <clears throat> calling from Winnipeg, Manitoba, on a beautiful Saturday day after Canada Day. Um, just uh, there was uh, something on Twitter earlier um, this morning. It uh, just showed, reinforced the the brutality, the the um, inhumane um, way that the um, illegal, unprovoked invasion um, by the barbarians from the east, the Russians, is going. It showed uh, a dog, um, beautiful dog that had its back broken um, and its back legs broken and the um, illegal invaders had um, attached it to an I believe an IED uh, did anyone see this that 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 was I, I, I posted something on Twitter after I saw that anyways I sent that I I've read before on this uh, wonderful space comments from my uh, a dissident in Russia, and um, I sent that to this person. And if I may, uh, I'd just like to read that person's comments. Is that all right? Oh yeah, I'm sad real quick. Uh, sure. I, I saw that picture. Uh, go yeah. ahead, and hear it. sorry. Yeah, um, the main saddest when he seized administrative resources under his criminal power, created conditions in the country to release sadistic drives in all who has this kind of psychology. All such creatures should, ha- should not have place on this planet. This statement should be considered not an emotional declaration, but directive for effective actions. The planet should be cleaned from sadists. All animals should be protected from them. I think this horrible case should be widely shown on all major media in the free world. People all over the world should know the real nature of Putin's orcs. So I, w- I wanted to share that with everybody. Um, Slava Ukraini, and I'll drop down to listener. And uh, just um, very wonderful to have uh, Walter report, um, like a number of you have said over the weeks and months. Um, this is our online family um, in opposition to the unprovoked illegal aggression um, by the barbarians from the east. Thank you. I'll go down. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that, uh, Martin. Uh, Heroin Slava. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's basically like the, the Russian military looked at that quote from Wellington about the military being made, 
the army being made up of the scum of the earth and thought, hey, that's a great idea. We should keep doing that um, and, you know, weaponize it. And unfortunately, that's that's what we're seeing a horde of uh, sadists sweeping across Ukraine, uh, committing all sorts of atrocities. And of course, you know, like and like anything is a weapon, right? Even even crippling a defenseless animal and, and tying it to to a bomb because you know they they know that someone's going to come and help whereas they're just as likely to to eat it or something uh with regard to that uh salient uh joseph you're you're mentioning the one to the east of veliki novosilka right yeah that's correct yeah i believe i believe that's been largely uh static over the the past weeks and months, uh, I I do remember seeing some sort of uh, fingers coming out into sort of driving south, right? But but nothing major. So um, I, I would definitely keep an eye on that in in terms of you know looking for potential shaping operations. But um, yeah, I don't I don't actually see that changing too much currently. Um, the sort of stabilizing uh, the lines. Uh, to the west of Lyschansk and uh, fortifying the Severk salient, salient while Kherson takes place is is probably going to keep the Ukrainians' hands full. Yuha? Uh, uh, yeah, Yuha. Here, uh, just uh, imperious. You mentioned these concentration camps. I just I had a bad line and I, I missed. Uh, what was the source for the information? Uh, this was the Mariupol uh, City Council. Uh, they, okay. they posted it to their Terrafam channel. Okay, thank you. CJ, are you here for a bonus round? I am, but I wanted to speak to the last topic. Well, or the last couple. So, the, you know, the the salient I'd seen sort of starting to to form, or the penetration was in again what I, what I thought was Ivanivka, uh, as uh, Joseph pointed out. Again, maybe it's a different Ivanivka, but um, when they were when they were showing the maps and whatnot, and they had some pictures on the ground of Russian tanks leaving either going to Zaporizhia or Donetsk that, I mean, that's tied in with that Ivanivka. So that would be encouraging to say the least, because that's about a 10 kilometer jump. And that is a very heavily populated area, but more important, there's a lot of roads there. And so that would be pretty crucial for Ukrainians to control. Going back a second here, not to be a Debbie Downer, but it's just, it's so important. And unfortunately Martin left because I wanted to address it. So, you know, when you see the side that's, uh, you know, abusing animals, you know, 99 times out of 100, they're not the winners. And, and in terms of a, a military strategy being cruel to, you know, people or, or, or animals, um, you know, we saw it when the Taliban was losing in Afghanistan, you know, putting bombs in donkeys. We saw it, I saw it last summer with, you know, kids slicing the throats uh, of dogs to elicit reaction. And I just would be very careful about really talking about this at all for, for only the reason is that there is a strong feeling in the West of animals and pets that we could somehow empathize and sympathize with them more than the people of Ukraine. And I can tell you from personal experience, the people that are fighting the war, it would be absolutely um, demoralizing if, if this somehow became a topic. And I know people mean well, I got, that's why I want to stress it's a terrible thing, but just be very careful how you talk about it. Cause the reality is they're raping and murdering Ukrainians first and foremost, and everything is a, a far, far distant second. But I know obviously everyone here is in, in good faith, but I just wanted to point that out. Thank you, CJ. Uh, do we want to go to Leonard? Okay, thank you, Joseph. Uh, yeah, I just had a brief reference, just backing up for a moment to Imperius's 
uh, last comment, he, he, he kind of briefly quoted the Duke of Wellington at Waterloo. Uh, I'm in Canada, and we pretty much cut our teeth on uh, uh, Wellington, the Iberian campaigns, and the entire Napoleonic adventure, uh, anti-Napoleonic venture leading up to Waterloo. And I just point out that uh, you should probably make the full quote, which is that uh, Wellington said, uh, in reference to kind of the rabble, uh, he said, um, I, I don't know what uh, impact this lot may have upon the enemy, but they certainly scare the hell out of me, sir. Uh, and uh, additionally, just as a, as a uh, sort of a closing, uh, regardless of what kind of a rabble or what kind of, um, I forget how Imperius described it, but uh, scum or whatever, scum of the earth or whatever, but uh, regardless of that factor, um, the uh, Wellington and the, the British Army throughout, even at that time, maintained severe discipline in terms of the military code of conduct. And uh, any uh, soldiers or um, enlisted in the service of the Crown who would have been found anywhere near any of the activities that the Russians have been conducting routinely throughout the Ukraine. Uh, in the British Army, that would have been grounds for court-martial, uh, uh, summary execution, and certainly, at the very least, massive flogging with a cat of nine tails. And that was more than 200 years ago. So that just shows you how far behind uh, civilization the Russians truly are. And uh, with that, I will close. Frederick, you're completely correct. I agree with you. Frederick II and Napoleon Bonaparte had rules of engagement and rules for conduct for their soldiers, both 50 years apart. At the same time when the British had it, others didn't because their cultures did not develop that way. It's the Russian culture which is the issue. Thank you, that's, Axel. That, that's some great historical context. I and mean, I just wanted to add, I think uh, it's great to clarify that for our audience that absolutely the British would never treat uh, uh, you know their, their military conduct this way. Uh, but you know, I think Imperius's sort of point was like the British looked at it and said, "Oh, we've got all these criminals and scum. We've got to like shape them up into an army." And the Rush and I interpreted Imperius's comments to mean the Russians looked at this and said, "Okay, we let's institutionalize all this scum and villainy and, and just uh, you know turn it into an actual army like that." You know, that's kind of just a, a different attitude towards towards the. Uh, the human resource that they have uh, in terms of their, their military person. It's a, a real situation. Anyway, CJ, I wanted to do a bonus round. Are, are you ready for the bonus round? The, pro the provosts in the uh, Napoleonic War were not shy about hanging anyone they even remotely suspected of, of looting or, or any sort of untoward behavior. Um, I'm, I'm sure like anyone who's familiar uh, could DM uh, anyone interested about... Uh, particular cases, but yeah, the British military discipline uh, in the 1700s, incredibly strict. Okay, CJ, so we got like a rough idea of uh, what the bonus round is. It's an anti-tank round. Uh, I have, I guess, two main questions. If you could elaborate a little bit more on the specifics of the projectile itself in terms of like how it actually works, uh, why it's so good at destroying a tank. And then uh, my second question is, can I put a rocket on it and make it go real, real far? Uh, that's just uh, uh, my own curiosity, uh, like they did with Snake Island. Thank you. Yeah, no. So, so what the bonus round is, or the and the smart round is very similar. There are two 
uh, guided artillery rounds that are very, very new. I mean, they're only uh, two to three years actually in use by any military. And so what they are is it's a 155 round that goes up. And when it explodes in air, it, it kind of switches into two rounds with uh, like little parachutes or slash fins to guide them in. And they look for heat or, you know, basically heat IR signatures. So it, it could be a tank, but it also could be really a vehicle or anything warm. So when you use these things, you, you use them close to your guys because otherwise they'll start coming towards you. But long story short, you know, when once they get close to the tank, it, it, it turns into an ESMP, like a uh, basically a penetrating charge which is the same sort of uh, missile effect more or less as a javelin. So the only difference really generally between the javelin and this thing is to get there, instead of relying on rocket boosters and a missile, it relies on the, the force of the 155 round. So, um, you know, at a cost of 20 to, to 40K, again, it's a little bit difficult to ascertain the exact cost. It's still a hell of a lot cheaper and it can shoot a hell of a lot further than a javelin. But what you have to think is, this, you know, you fire this thing way off in the distance, you, you have to kind of have the general idea of where you're going in terms of like, unlike a javelin where you look at the tank and you, and you shoot it. If you're trying to shoot a tank 35 kilometers away, uh, it, it's very hard to actually see it, like to have line of sight. So really, these things are only going to be good when there's a lot of tanks in a big area and, and then they'll be more effective. But, you know, obviously Russia has a lot of vehicles, so this could be a very effective weapon for the Ukrainians. So, so just so I understand, CJ, you're saying that it will destroy two targets if it if it lands over an area and there's two tanks there that it'll split up into two separate projectiles and destroy both tanks, or it, do both projectiles go to one? I believe uh, I think it could be either or. Again, this is not something the U.S. military is used in combat at all, so I'm a little bit fuzzy on its application. But I think it can be at least two, maybe three, even. Um, and because it's um, an EFMP charge going straight down, it is it goes to the thinnest part of the armor. So you kind of get the best of a, you know, a javelin missile at the low cost and extreme range of a howitzer. Yeah, I think you, you bring up a really great point, which is, you know, the javelin, it, mm. it works really well. But as far as I understand, the, the part that makes it the most expensive is the sensors, right? The brain and the eyes the of the javelin missile. Yeah, the, the command uh, launch unit there. Yeah, so that's the most expensive part. But the missiles are still, I think, between fifty and 70000 each. So still pretty hefty for, for one target. Right, but if we, yeah, if we can, like, get the javelin, you know, the explosive part of the javelin, the uh, F, I forget, the EF, EF some, EFD, uh, if we can get that close to the tank and we can use a dumber sensor to detect the tank, then that would lower the cost of, you know, per shot considerably in terms of getting the, you know, it's, it's always a question of how do we get the ordnance there quickly, right? Like a, a, a 155 shell and a, a heavy mortar, I forget the caliber, are basically the same payload, right? So it's sort of a, a cheaper way to get it there in terms of propellant, right? And when we say cheaper, it's not that we want the Ukrainians to have the lowest cost things. It's just to produce these things in mass quantities. It's where you get, you know, a high quality and cheaper becomes super beneficial in a longer war. Cost, cost efficient, I think, is, is how we should describe it. Sorry for that. Yes. First of all, thank you, everyone. Ivana Stradner just joined us, our special guest for today. There was some technical difficulty on our end. Pardon for that, Durant, Ivana. And uh, Peter Doran is also on the way. He's going to help us for the co-hosting. And uh, that said, again, everyone, welcome. Ivana just joined us. Uh, Ivana, to you. And Peter also is on the panel. Welcome, both of you. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak with you today.
Ivana, it is so good to have you here in the space with the Walter Report. Um, welcome. Thank you so much, Peter. Well, um, Ivana, as you perhaps know, uh, the Welter Report uh, and Maria Aid uh, have been going strong essentially since February 23rd, uh, when Russia initiated this latest phase in the uh, in the invasion. Uh, ever since then, 24/7, uh, the Welter Report has been running a continuous uh, Twitter space uh, to do many things. Most importantly, to debunk Russian fake news and Russian disinformation, uh, to share accurate news in, and information. Uh, and to support the uh, efforts of Maria Aid, which has, uh, is a Canadian-registered NGO uh, that has done tremendously positive work in pushing uh, humanitarian and non-lethal assistance uh, into Ukraine. Uh, so we're delighted to have you here. Uh, as many in the audience know, uh, Ivana is a, uh, a colleague of mine, and also she is one of the leading experts uh, on the Russia in the East, uh, and in particular, uh, on Russian disinformation. Uh, I've come to learn a lot in, in the past several months from Ivana's insights on Russian disinformation and uh, the devious tactics it uses uh, to try and win the war of narratives. Um, Ivana, I have a few questions for you, and then I think there's going to be a lot of questions from the audience. But what I would ask everyone to do at this point uh, is to uh, retweet and share this space. Uh, let's let everyone know uh, that we have one of the world's leading experts on disinformation here in the Walter Report. Uh, and let's, Ivana, roll up our sleeves and get to it. Uh, why don't you share some of your insights uh, of where we stand right now uh, at what Russia has done right and wrong and how we can assist uh, the Ukrainians in their fight at this point. Thank you again so much, Peter, for uh, this great introduction. And thank you for inviting me to this space. This is the first time actually that I'm speaking with you. So um, I'm working on Russian information warfare um, and I'm focusing not only what Russia is doing in Ukraine, but also Russia's activities here in the United States. Um, I'm currently monitoring very closely Russia's space in Africa um, and elsewhere in Europe. So uh, given that this is the first time I'm speaking here, I would just like to give some overview of where I stand when it comes to perceiving Russian information warfare. Um, to begin with, um, I'm not a data scientist, so I'm not monitoring bots, but I work with data science. I'm not working on Russian disinformation campaigns from the perspective of um, NGO sector, for example, um, focusing solely on American domestic policy. I think what I bring to the table is actually I analyze Russian information warfare from the Kremlin's perspective. I analyze uh, Russian information warfare techniques um, analyzing Russian military experts, because if we want to counter Russian disinformation campaigns, we need to think like the Kremlin. And having said that, I would actually like to start uh, explaining, like, bringing, like, a, a really negative, first of all, the truth that there is not even the word cyber security in the Russian language. Um, and why that matters? That matters because Russia has a very different word. It's called information security. Um, and given what's happening right now in the information space, you really need to perceive it in a more holistic way, not only from the technical part, for example, what Russia is doing um, with a potential attacks on our critical infrastructure, but also using um, 
cognitive information workers, such as uh, what we call here also disinformation, but it's only one part of Russia's information warfare. Um, I think it's very important to understand um, that Russia's information campaigns in the United States differ from what Russia is doing in Ru what, what Russia is doing domestically in Russia, in Ukraine, but also globally as well as in international institutions. Uh, right now, there is a common pattern, especially in Twitter, where um, the leading information warfare scholars they have declared the victory of the West in the information space. Um, I disagree with this. Uh, maybe Russia has lost the information battle on Twitter in our bubble. Um, even though this is the first time that I'm speaking here, I was listening to numerous um, Walter reports um, um, spaces so far, and I know that you bring top-notch experts here. And I'm confident to say, whenever Russia spreads lies about bioelectric, it's very difficult for the majority of us to buy this now. But outside of Twitter, um, not only in the United States, but globally, Russia is doing quite well, actually. Um, so let me first tell you a few things what's happening here in the United States and then to give you like a more global overview of um, what is happening. Um, there is, of course, you know, I don't want to, I, I spoke with Walter with you and you told me that our listeners are very much aware of what's going on. So I should not discuss like a basic things, uh, but everyone has been discussing like a Russian um, disinformation campaign, which is only one part of Russia's information warfare technique here in the United States since 2016. But this is actually really wrong because this has been the continuation over the past few decades, especially after uh, 2014. And uh, what we are observing right now, uh, for example, yesterday, uh, I'll just give you a few narratives. Um, on Twitter, uh, uh, the end of the international liberal order um, has been um, has been trending. Many politicians have actually accused uh, the Biden administration for uh, fighting for the liberal order at the expense of the gas prices. First of all, I'm not even sure that I really understand what uh, we mean by international liberal order um, in terms of uh, international uh, rule of law. Uh, probably they thought that it would be the word liberal something else. But this is important to mention because that's a narrative that Putin has been spreading about the end of the international liberal order for years. And why does that matter? It matters because um, Russia does not need to penetrate in our information space directly, which they've been doing, but they can also use domestic audience on both sides of the spectrum to deliver a specific message. This is only one of the example. I can give you another example uh, with bio. Um, so there was a particular narrative that the United States has biolab in the territory of Ukraine uh, that we've been that we were training migratory birds to deliver uh, bioweapons. Then uh, the Russian government became more tech savvy, so they accused us of developing drones uh, and using specifically DNA 
to deliver uh, bioweapons. And um, such narratives did not come from random, but they came directly from the Russian government. And some, the majority of us might actually laugh about all these things, but this narrative, um, I, can, I will talk briefly about what's happening in Africa and why that matters, but I want to emphasize why that matters also here. Because for example, on the both far right and both far left, uh, both like Atulsi uh, Gabbard and Tucker Carlson were spreading the same message um, using uh, their uh, information space and media space to deliver such messages. Um, and this is really a gift to Putin because it helps polarize the society further and to deliver messaging uh, that creates the pro-Kremlin narrative of Russia's invasion in Ukraine. Uh, it also has a very subtle um, tactic also to further polarize our society. And I'm not saying that any of these two, uh, e either Tulsi or Tucker Carlson, that they are agents of the Kremlin, I'm not saying that, but many, many, many people here really on their social media space serve as um, useful idiot sometimes to deliver such messages. Um, this is one part of the thing. The second part of the thing, uh, Russia still operates um, even on Twitter, let alone on other uh, social media platforms um, through powerful messaging via bots and further polarizing our country. What happened a few days ago with the abortion law, with, uh, uh, with the gun rights, um, I was speaking uh, with uh, several um, data scientists and they noticed absolutely the same pattern of uh, penetrating the system and polarizing uh, and polarizing Americans uh, further. Ivana, can, uh, can I ask you a specific question? Yes, on that? yes, because, yes. Because mm -hmm. I think you, you've really uh, hit the nail on the head. Um, I really liked how you stressed uh, that Ukraine was an initial laboratory for Russia in developing many of its early disinfo prototypes, so to speak. Those prototypes have now been used against the United States, against Europe, and increasingly uh, are being deployed in far more advanced variants in Asia and, and Africa and elsewhere. Um, the other thing that I think you really hit on, and I think it's a good point, is that uh, Russia has become very good at exploiting existing ideas that are in the public debate, but twisting them. And this liberal world order one is, is a good one because the liberal world order means is the world we have enjoyed since 1945. It means a world where we fight against genocide, against war crimes, against endless wars. It doesn't mean new world order or Biden's world order, but Russia has exploited the ambiguity of this message in order to create division and distraction here in our political systems. Um, I wonder if you could really talk about uh, how you think Russia is effective at this, and more specifically, what are Russia's weaknesses? Because I, I think we have reached the point where we should stop admiring the problem and look at solutions and, and how we counteract Russian uh, information warfare against us. So uh, I absolutely agree with you, Peter, because what Russia is doing with many people, it's really, really an ugly truth. But this war is really changing uh, the, the future of the world order. And uh, Russia wanted to uh, challenge 
NATO's Article 5 to show that the European Union is obsolete and uh, the democracy as an ideology is just an obsolete word. And I want to emphasize this thing. Here in the United States, we engage really in wishful thinking and psychological denial. And Russia knows that. Um, even back during the Cold War, the same pattern. And the Kremlin succeeds, not because they can deceive us, but because of our tendency to deceive ourselves. And that's, you know, number one thing that we need to um, emphasize. What can we do about it? Well, to begin with, we need to recognize this as a problem, um, not from a perspective of, certain political party that can actually exploit this weakness because that's exactly what russia wants this is a problem for both democrats and republicans um and what would make russia happy is actually to use this information campaign to advance their own political interests so this is a really uh, a very tricky situation Second thing, what I want to emphasize, Russia is using um, information operations on the strategic, operational, and tactical level. We are not doing that. We actually abandoned um, information operations campaigns after the end of the Cold War on uh, both strategic, uh, use, to use it like on both strategic and tactical level. We are using that mostly uh, when, when it comes to military uh, military campaigns, but we are not using that in the way that the Kremlin is using as a public diplomacy. Um, that's number that's number two that I would like to emphasize. And I and I've heard from different sources like that United States is trying to change its strategy with Marine Corps and for example how they are changing their strategy. They announced the strategy a few days ago. These are all like uh, things that are going in the right direction, but we need to move quickly. The third thing is Russia is using information operations both defensively and offensively. Uh, if you look back. Uh, 20 years ago, uh, when um, Russia uh, adopted the national security strategy, it openly stated that the West is waging information, you know, warfare against, I'm just paraphrasing, uh, against uh, Russia's moral and spiritual values. Putin has this paranoia about um, our psychological operations, and he accused the West multiple times of a regime change, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I can talk more about that, and that actually led to additional thing um, uh, that uh, two years ago Russia adopted a law, uh, basically uh, blackmailing all social media companies unless you comply with the Russian law and delete certain narratives, for example, child pornography, you will be. Uh, banned or like they impose certain restrictions or, or fines. But like if you read carefully uh, this particular law and how it was implemented, it was just a window dressing to punish all social media platforms who did not want to actually comply with Russia's uh, narrative. Therefore, um, I think the third thing what I want to emphasize here, we need to become more comfortable using uh, information operations in an offensive manner, and I'm not saying that we should um, that we should peddle disinformation campaigns inside Russia or challenge Russia globally using this information. The truth is really on our side, but we are not really doing that enough. I mean, that's you a just powerful have... point, and it's actually a, it's been very controversial in the policy debate over several I years. Know.
should we be think of Infowar uh, in offensive terms? Um, Ivana, what I want to do here, we've got a you've uh, solicited a lot of interest from the group uh, and the audience. Uh, so I wanted to maybe mix it up and have a conversation here. Uh, I see a couple hands up. Uh, I'd again, encourage everyone to like and retweet this space. Uh, and then if you wish to uh, become a speaker, uh, raise your hand. Um, all, Artur and Walter, I'm gonna look to you to maybe bring up some speakers as well as I'm not that expert as a host, but I'm trying. Uh, so if you could do that, that would be great. But in the meantime, let's go to CJ. Uh, and then uh, after you asked your question, CJ, uh, we'll go to Spring. CJ, over to you. Thank you so much, Peter. Ivana, so happy to have you on the space. So my background is uh, artillery and I'm in the US Army currently. And so one thing we do in the space, as Peter mentioned, is sort of analyze and combat disinformation in real time. So while it's still fresh in everyone's mind, I'm hoping you can give us some insights on a specific case so that we can kind of apply it to the larger framework. And I'm talking about the Kremenchuk uh, mall bombing. And so some things that we saw in this space, um, you know, both from Telegram, social media, et cetera, was a bunch of competing narratives. You know, the one of the narratives put out by sort of the useful idiots, as we, of course, call them, is that there was no you know, military target there, and of course, Ukraine did it. And then from the more of the strategic communication, we saw you know, that there was sort of military weapons in the area, and it was successfully destroyed, and it went all the way up into a very rare appearance by Vladimir Putin himself commenting on this strike. And so my question for you is, when sort of any of these things happen, is Russia generally deliberately putting out a bunch of narratives so that one of them sticks? Are they trying to just sow uh, doubt in the minds of just people in India, Africa, and all these other places that you mentioned? So can you just sort of explain what's going on and what you hope, what they hope their, their end state is? Mm -hmm. So you mentioned a really fascinating example, and I can mention a bunch of other examples given what's happening right now in the information space. But that particular example that you just mentioned, it's the part of a strategy to confuse the audience because it's not only to provoke it's not only for example to penetrate in the system to fabricate the lies to the to make a diversion um, to spread this information and also what i call it like also part of a combination but really to overwhelm the system with conflicting information so you don't even know what the truth is um, um, that has been the Russian strategy since the Cold War. It's continuing right now. And as I stated, um, it's, um, it's quite, you know, uh, complicated to talk about this subject with experts on water report. But when I speak, for example, with my uh, friends in Eastern Europe, um, they often call me with very conflicting narratives and they're confused. Um, and this is how Russia wins. Uh, precisely by the confusion uh, and overwhelming the information space with conflicting information. CJ, I think you asked a great question, and I really want to echo what Ivana said, because oftentimes that aim is overlooked when we discuss the war of narratives and Russian info ops. Um, hold on, I think we have a... Ivana, do we have a hot mic on your side? Yeah, great. Um, so it's, it's not to... It's not to have, you know, Ma and Pa Jones in Kansas sitting on their couch uh, and go, oh, golly, I, I didn't realize it, but I think Vladimir Putin's right here. Uh, ultimately, what Russia is trying to uh, achieve, and Ivana, you very succinctly pointed that out, is 
confusion. Uh, is this idea in the minds of the audience that, well, I don't know what to believe. I'm just going to throw up my hands and not believe anyone. That achieves a Russian victory in itself. And we, I think we definitely saw that in the uh, example of the attack on the Ukrainian mall because Russia came out and said, oh, it said many things. And the fact that it, it was inconsistent, everyone was pointing that out. Oh, look, you're inconsistent with this narrative. And three hours ago, you said the exact opposite. The whole point is to confuse. The whole point is to create people, uh, in people's minds. And you know what, Peter? I mean... As we all know, this is going. This war is going to last uh, a very long time, and one of the main goals for Russia is really to uh, develop this war fatigue. And one of the ways that they are doing that in the information space is overwhelming the information space with conflicting narratives. So I absolutely agree with you. And you just mentioned, you know, one example. I can give you uh, so many examples because Russia has this. Particular, Russian military has this particular theory of reflexive control, and one of the key goals is also overload by uh, frequently sending the enemy a large amount of conflicting in information, but also, for example, to paralyze when they create a perception of a specific threat to, uh, for example, uh, that is to a vital interest or a weak spot. Uh, and this also leads to exhaustion, what I, what I mentioned earlier. Basically, uh, to compel us that uh, we carry out so many useless operations, even in the information space, um, um, that sometimes I even fall for this trick. Um, and, and that's a very powerful strategy for, for a long war. Yvonne, you... Uh, Spring, I want to get to you, but uh, I think we're really actually having a, a, a substantive conversation here. This phrase has come up before, reflexivnaya uprojenia, reflexive control. Uh, it's a wonky, weird term. Uh, a few years ago, no one even knew what it was. Uh, but it ultimately, it's very similar in, in my mind to the mentality of a sociopath. So when a sociopath says, when I say you, I actually mean me. So when I say you're doing this, that's bad. I'm really talking about myself. And so when we see reflexive control used by Russia, oftentimes we'll see someone like Sergei Lavrov or Russian media outlets say, you are threatening us. You are threatening me. When in real reality, they're threatening us, they're threatening the West. But it, it is designed to create this pause in our policy debate, this pause in our minds to make us go, oh, are we? Maybe we are. Maybe we should pull back. And in doing so, we are habitually conditioned to actually instinctively act against our own interests and advantage Russia's. Uh, have you seen that in throughout the Ukraine war? Maybe you could talk a little bit more about Russia's use of reflexive control, because it is a uh, old tool that Russia has used against us. Um, yes. So this is a very, very old tool of Russia's military uh, strategy um, that basically where you're doing things that benefit Russia, but you're uh, doing all those things that uh, you think that benefit you, to put it, um, I, I think I, I explained it properly. I, I hope so. Um, and uh, I see that, I mean, on a daily basis, because as I stated, even in the cyberspace, uh, they want to overload us with information. Um, they want us to, to paralyze us by creating the perception of a specific threat. Uh, 
um, what I'm observing right now, let's say in the parallel, uh, paralyzing us uh, with a, a nuclear threat. And I really, really like ones which we were both of us were talking when you said that they are trying to deter us in our minds. Um, um, and that also works, especially for Europe uh, uh, and France and Germany in particular, that they really, really uh, are doing everything possible to de-escalate uh, this war uh, out of, uh, out of uh, nuclear threats. Um, you can also see, for example, this exhaustion, and I'm sure that we'll see more and more uh, of that in the near future, um, driving us in a such a narrative uh, with uh, across different areas, uh, what's happening, for example, right now in Moldova uh, and in Transnistria, what's happening right now in Georgia. We're all paying attention to all those tiny things that we sometimes miss really uh, the big picture. The fourth thing is, for example, deception. And as I stated, they are not even trying to, uh, uh, they're, they're using this deception in a very strategic uh, manner through all those complaints, campaigns that we, that we mentioned. And division. I mean, it's, it became such a buzzword. You know, Americans are becoming so polarized. It's such a divided system. But it is. And that's also part of, of what I just mentioned earlier regarding um, uh, the gun control, the abortion law, um, it goes both ways, and, I, and I'm very upset, you know, when people are talking about division only from one side, when in fact uh, the, Russian, uh, the Russian strategy is really to invest efforts in both sides. Uh, you can also see this uh, pacification, for example, where they are, especially in Europe, uh, they're using right now with leaders where they are trying to appease Putin and Putin is putting forward potential talks, et cetera, et cetera. You will see more and more of that. Uh, uh, lots of provocations. Um, the part of, for example, it's also like the pressure. So you have like a typical playbook that they are using one by one thing. And this is, as I stated, really nothing new. Russia was using the very similar pattern even during the Cold War. So uh, we'll see, you know, just more and more examples of this thing. It's happening on a daily basis. What is old is new again. I could, I think you said it well there. All right. So um, a lot of people are uh, retweeting the debate. That's excellent. Uh, if you would like, you can also uh, tweet at Peter B. Duran and hashtag the Walter Report uh, and, uh, if, and ask your question as well. And if we can get to it, I'm happy to do so. Uh, let's go now to Spring. Uh, uh, so you know Ivana. Spring is a longtime contributor uh, to the space from Portugal, and she's a, uh, a geographer, I believe. Uh, Spring, over to you. Hi. Thank you, Peter, and thank you, Ivana, for being here with us tonight at Walter Report. Um, it has been amazing to hear you because um, many of the things that I have been thinking. I'm not an expertise in Russia propaganda, but I'm a native Portuguese speaker, and I have been following.